Hey there, Damien Blinkensop here with The Quantified Body. This is a show where we look at tools and tactics to improve our body's health, performance, and longevity. And we do it all with a quantified perspective, always looking for data such as biomarkers for real evidence that this will work. We keep this show as practical as possible. Okay, if you've checked out previous episodes like number 22 with Bob Troyer, we talked about the value of getting a good physician on your team so you can work on improving your health and even your performance in some situations. Because the truth is that none of us have optimal health, like high performance health if you think about it, because there's nearly always something you can do to improve how you feel and how you operate day to day. Today we're talking to a physician who's actually working in the field with patients in San Francisco, and he's made personal data from his patients an important part of the practice and how they get results. We look at where he has seen it work and where he has seen it not work and where he believes that the effort and the time you put into it is, makes it worthwhile. So the return on investment of time and effort makes it worthwhile because you get some kind of upside and benefits, whether it be uh, resolving the issues quicker or actually resolving the issue where it may not have been possible before. We're also going to dig deeper into the reality of using data in medical practices uh, with your physician today. There's a lot of new labs available to consumers that we've talked about many of them. Can these be used? And there's obviously a lot of wearables and other things you can track. So we'll be looking at where this is paying off more, where it's probably still too early yet, and where things may go in the next five years. Today's guest is Paul Abramson, MD. He has an integrative medicine practice in San Francisco. Integrative, so that means it combines conventional Western medicine, the usual type, and functional medicine, which we've looked at in episode 12 with Jeffrey Bland. Now, what's interesting about Paul is that he is also a former electrical engineer and programmer. And it kind of makes sense that he got into this quantified uh, self-tracking aspect earlier than other physicians. He has his medical degree from the University of California, San Francisco, and he has an integrative medicine degree from Dr. Andrew Wiles Center for Integrative Medicine at the University of Arizona. I first met Paul at the Quantified Self 2014, where we were both presenting. He held a workshop where he was talking about some of the case studies they'd seen and in his practice, where self-tracking had helped and where it worked, and some guidelines that they'd already developed for making it work better. What is great about Paul, and I really appreciate, is his ability to see the two sides. He looks at the reality the possibilities and what's really practical and really happening today. So we get to a middle ground between the hype and the norm, say, where self-tracking isn't used at all, trying to get to this place where the practical reality is there. What can we actually do with self-tracking in medicine today and get some real results from it? As usual, to get the show notes for this episode, to get the MP3 download, links to everything we talk about, to get the tracking side of the equation, the tools and tactics side of the equation, all summarized neatly for you in a done-for-you way, go to thequantifiedbody.net forward slash episodes and pick out this episode, episode 31, there. If you want all of that in your email inbox, go to thequantifiedbody.net forward slash newsletter, pop your email in there, and you'll put those show notes on automatic for yourself. Now let's meet Paul Abramson, MD. The Quantified Body. New technologies are bringing us more and better data on our bodies every day. This data promises to help us make better decisions for better health, higher performance, less disease, and greater longevity. In the quantified body, we explore this promise 
to find out where it is creating real-world results, improving bodies, and improving lives. I've been very imbued in like the conventional science-based, I put science in quotes, based world. And I've also been very interested in alternative points of view and meditation and what I would call consciousness and behavior and things that are in essence insubstantial in a material sense, but I think often just as relevant to our, our lives and well-being. And, um, so uh, in that vein, I had individual interests and pursuits in, the, in those areas. And then I went to work for Andrew Weil in Tucson at the University of Arizona um, in his integrated medicine program there. I was a residential fellow for a year and we saw patients there and had case conferences with all of his. To take a step back, what does integrative medicine mean? Because we haven't really talked about it on the show before. Integrative medicine has a hundred definitions and it has been, I would say, used and co-opted by a variety of different people and interests over the years. As I define it, and I think I'm pretty much in line with Andrew Weil on this, integrative medicine is a way of looking at all of the available approaches, perspectives, tools, tests, treatments that are out there, and then looking at each individual as an individual and trying to make the match between what's going on for them and what is the best combination of approaches. So in essence, it includes all of conventional medicine and science-based or whatever you want to call it, uh, conventional medicine, and it includes alternative things, and it includes consciousness-based things, and mind and body, and it can even include spirituality and things that are unknowable as part of the paradigm by which you help, try to help people both understand what's going on for them and come up with a plan of what to do next. Right. So I think it's, it's completely non-exclusive, and I also apply a very discerning and discriminating kind of eye to it in that of all the available options out there, I'm going to evaluate each one on how useful do I think this is. And there are some things that do not meet my sniff test or my deep investigation that I do not. And once I've determined that I'm not really interested in something or that I don't think it's going to be fruitful for me as one of my tools, I, I leave it to the side. So I just weed things out. It is not an indiscriminate approach of all, all is good. It is... More like I'm not. I'm going to start with an open mind and then apply appropriate skepticism and investigation to choose what tools I, I think are going to be helpful, and they may vary depending on the individual. And so I do not apply a one-size-fits-all approach to anybody. There's no one test or one treatment that I think is applicable to everybody. Nor is there one paradigm that I think is applicable to everybody. So for some people, that is disconcerting. So is integrative medicine, is there an actual organization behind that? Or is it more, it's, it's a term used for people who are dabbling in the functional medicine, the alternative and the... Well, there is now a board certification in integrative medicine for medical doctors. Yeah. There is a consortium of academic centers in integrative medicine um, that includes many of the big tertiary care centers in the United States that have integrative medicine centers and research programs. And I think a lot of that comes into this kind of definition where it's consistent with the conventional medical world and a much larger sphere around it. The functional medicine has an organization behind it. So does integrative medicine tend to relate to that more because there's a big 
organization behind it versus some of the other things you were talking, which I imagine don't have as much structure to them? Well, integrated medicine ultimately is, I, I guess, integrative, meaning it's not an either or proposition. It's whatever works. Whereas some of the other things out there are more alternative, where it's more of an us versus them kind of situation where we, we have a certain truth. Those other people, especially either the conventional people or the alternative people, are biased, wrong, or otherwise not reputable in some way. And therefore, you should pay attention to our, our perspective. That is not, to me, integrative. But I think the conventional medical world falls into that trap. And I think the functional and alternative medicine world falls into that trap equally. <laughs> it's, kind of, it's kind of like yeah. Republicans and Democrats. It kind of huh. Republicans and Democrats. And in reality, I would say that my flavor of integrated medicine, or what I consider, is it's not exclusive in that way. It's like... Of all the things out there, some of them are valid, some of them are not. Some of them work for some people, some of them don't work for some people. And you just have to be creative and, and you have to be discerning and discriminating enough to not get overwhelmed by the complexity. You have to be able to take this, in essence, if you are not ready for tolerating ambiguity and dealing with massive complexity, then it's easier to track into something that is simpler, where it's more cut, clear cut and there is right and wrong. And whereas if you want to take the big picture, you have to help people weed through all of this complexity to come up with a relatively knowable, simple approach that is going to work for them. And then you have to be willing to measure and then accept if it is not working out, you're going to back up and take another set of things and take another approach. And you have that in the startup technology world out here, they call it pivoting. <laughs> where you do something, you go full bore at it, and you try it to the best of your ability, but you have to be constantly measuring your success. And if it's not working out, you have to get over your ego and your attachment, and you have to back up and rethink and pivot and keep moving. Yeah, that is the only rational approach to medicine that I can think of. That's it's a very interesting point because you'll know better than me. People, when it comes to health, fitness, these diets, and these types of areas, they get very, very infused, emotional about it, right? Like um, they tend to become fans of a certain approach rather than another. And I guess pivoting is like, I understand because I'm an entrepreneur, right? Like my first company, I didn't want to let go of it. I didn't want to change it at first until the pain in terms of profit loss <laughs> got enough that I was like, okay, I have to be serious. And I was taught to be able to pivot and make decisions based on data. Um, so I, I guess that probably happens a little in a bit in the medicine world as well. Like people eventually get to this point of pain where they've been following some course because of interest, of love. And then they're like, okay, I have to try and uh, get to some kind of data. Now, we first met a bit kind of briefly because uh, you were doing a talk at the Quantified Self Conference in 2013, end of 2013, I think it was. I think so. Um, and so that's also one of the things you've dabbled in a bit in your integrative medicine. Could you talk a little bit about why you started get, taking an interest in that and have made that a part of your practice? Well, I think it does come back to what we were just talking about. You have to gather data about what's going on for each individual to decide, is this working? Is this not working? Or are there things happening that are not good that need to, that should trigger us like your, your losses in your, in your startup? Like the earlier you can detect and decide that things are not going to go down the right path, you should pivot. And yet, if you're not sure, you might continue to go on for a while and take more measurements. But you have to be constantly. And so I was struggling in medicine with a lack of feedback. 
on my patients. We were meeting and setting a treatment plan in place and they were going off to do it. And I just was not getting enough feedback to know whether it was working, whether it needed to be adjusted or whether we needed to completely pivot and try something else. And so the promise with the quantified self approach is that it's not so much that there is a new sensor or a new test that is interesting to me, but it's a new paradigm. It's a new concept that people are going to observe themselves and then perhaps feed that back into a medical doctor or some other practitioner or some helper that they have, a coach. But many people just decide to do it for themselves where they're moving along with a plan and they're measuring and they're questioning and they're constantly trying to decide, do I keep going? Do I add? Do I subtract or do I pivot? And I started doing these kinds of experiments with people where you can then take all of human behavior and make it an experimental approach where instead of saying you have to take this medication for your high blood pressure forever, people hate that. What I do is I say, wow, your blood pressure is really high. We've measured it over a whole month and it's always really high. We know that's going to wear out your blood vessels and your kidneys and your brain and has a lot of, it ages you faster to have high blood pressure all the time. So why don't we lower it? And then why don't we start doing some experiments to see if we can find the cause or reverse the cause or come up with other approaches that are, that are more agreeable to you if they're not really into taking pharmaceuticals every day, which many people aren't. Um, and at such time as those things start working, we can think about revisiting. But while we're, I, I just say, while we're doing those experiments, let's limit the damage. And people respond much better to that. Um, instead of saying, oh, I'm just going to keep the high blood pressure going and then I'll, in six months I will have lost 40 pounds, maybe that happens, maybe it doesn't happen. Maybe they lose 40 pounds and their blood pressure is still through the roof high. It's a realistic approach that takes measurement into account but also addresses what's going on right now. And the tools we have from Quantified Self, some of the technology but more the paradigm of, of self-measurement and observation gives us some hope that the culture could shift into that kind of approach. So how do you, I mean, this is interesting, in a kind of work relationship, has it changed the work relationship between you and the patient when you introduce this? Do you work out some specific metrics with them or is it really very different? How have you seen this evolve in your practice and kind of like take, because you've been doing it for a few years yet now, so I'm sure you've kind of cut some things that didn't work and you've taken some things that did tend to work and you've kind of got some type of best practice that you're starting to put in place. Um, well, it's been humbling. <laughs> people are very different. They're different in their background. They're different in their medical and psychological situation. They're different in their social circumstances and their family and what the support is in their life to do things. And so some people actually just want me to say, this is what you've got. This is what you have to do and to prescribe to them. And they go home and they take their drugs and we limit the damage as best we know how with modern medicine. And sometimes that works out and sometimes that doesn't, but they don't have time or interest or even maybe the perspective to take a different kind of more proactive approach. And for those people, after I challenge it a little bit and determine that it is in fact how they want to be. It's interesting. Are they not interested enough in their health to, or is it because they're so busy with other things in life? What is the... Whatever reason, they are not in a position where they want to do something that takes more work or really that sort of takes a more subjective view of reality. Like there is a way, there are many choices out there. It's not really black and white. Some people really want the black and white. 
it's easier for them psychologically. And it's sometimes they're just so busy. They're like, they're like no way I'm going to have time to do experiments or even to take my blood pressure twice a week. We're just going to have to go without that. You know, especially diabetics. A lot of them just cannot be, can't get to check their blood sugar. And type 2 diabetes, you know, it's not really medically mandatory in many conventional settings for them to check their blood sugar all the time. You just take the medications and get some blood tests every few months and see how things are going. That's very unsatisfying for an engineer like myself. I really would want data and feedback and optimizing. Um, but many people are really not into that. It's either a cultural thing or just a logistical thing. They just aren't going to do that. Just out of interest, have you looked at the continuous glucose monitors? Oh, yes. Yeah. Quite have, you, have you been using those quite a bit or I found them useful? Um, well, I mean, they are generally able to be covered by insurance. They're very expensive. They're about $1,000, $1,500, somewhere around And then the supplies are also very expensive. Each Every week you need a new implanted sensor that could be hundreds of dollars. So you can really add up in a hurry per month and initial cost such that many people aren't going to do that. Now, if you're a type 1 diabetic from a young age or even older age where you're, you have no insulin around and insulin pumps are in the, in the offing, then often they can be covered. But for type 2 diabetics, it's usually a completely out-of-pocket expense. And what I've found is that there are often incredibly great insights that one obtains from the continuous glucose monitor. But only some people get ongoing benefit. What kind of, I mean, does it enable you to take some specific actions? Will you see some kind of behavior that they're undertaking, which is interfering with blood glucose or? I'm not really offering generally to watch their data continuously. Yeah. What we are doing is having them get self-feedback and then take notes in one way, electronic or paper, um, on their experiences with that data from the glucose monitor, because you have to calibrate them with a finger stick multiple times per day. And you have to use it properly to try to get valid data. And then you get to see in real time, if you eat something or if you exercise, you get very quick feedback about how it affects your blood sugar, both immediately and later. And so you can get pretty profound insights about that. And they are sometimes very unexpected. Um, that some things lower your blood sugar and some things raise your blood sugar and they don't match what the conventional wisdom says should happen. And then some things, just people just have to get it in their face that, wow, if I exercise, my blood pressure really is, or my blood sugar is so much better that um, it's motivating enough that it's going to make me exercise more. Um, but after a lot of people, after they get those insights, if they're type 2 diabetic, they can simply just use those wisdoms to change their behavior, and they don't have to go through the hassle of calibrating and wearing an implanted monitor that has a, something into their skin um, changed every week and calibrated several times a day. A lot of people don't really want to do that ongoing. And so then when you look at the upfront expense for something that they're only going to use for a relatively time-limited period of time, in most cases, because most people are not going to want to be doing that level of hassle if it's not required because they're not type 1 diabetic, a lot of people choose not to do the continuous monitor. Maybe when we get the, the um, non, truly non-invasive blood glucose sensor, uh, that is both accurate and possible. I actually worked when I was an electrical engineering grad student at Stanford in the early 1990s. I was doing consulting for startups before there was the first tech boom, the first internet tech boom. And I worked for a couple of different startups that were doing, trying to get non-invasive blood glucose monitors where they would shine a light through you or they would use ultrasound or they would use various technologies to try to get from the outside, your blood sugar. And the problem is glucose is such a small molecule 
and so hard to differentiate from other molecules that really a lot of companies went belly up back then and they are still failing today. I think there's a couple of watches or like I've seen them around. I haven't looked into that. I was concerned about the accuracy. I guess I'm a bit dubious about because like even the continuous glucose monitor, which you were just saying, you have to kind of calibrate it, right? And it's got something actually implanted in you. <laughs> so the accuracy of a, a watch with optical, I think they're using optical, would seem kind of unachievable at this point. This was the exact technology that they were trying to come up with in the startup in 1992. <laughs> mm, <laughs> and right. it ultimately did not kind of work out. And I think that at some point, someone is probably going to do it. But I, to my knowledge, it has not yet been done in a valid enough way that you could actually take action on the results. But maybe there is something that I don't know about that came out this year. I don't continuously watch that literature. I fatigued of that somewhere about 15 years ago um, after watching failure after failure. So I would just say that the measurement technology concept is something that you need to be very skeptical about. Um, because the, the, if you're going to take bold action based on the numbers, it better be pretty accurate and reliable and reproducible and usable. So that is a, uh, an ongoing concern for me. Now, more subjective measures, what we really came to in our self-tracking program here, one is that we don't apply a, a similar methodology to anybody. Everybody kind of gets a custom approach based on where they are and their readiness to do things and what problem they want to solve. But we've also really heavily weighted it toward what I would call subjective measures. Require them to actually stop and pay attention to what's going on in their experience. Um, because the objective measures that don't take any, the passive tracking approach where I wear a monitor and it spews data out at gigabytes per minute, it does not require awareness and it doesn't require self-knowledge. Like the learning is later when you look at the data. Um, whereas if you if to gather the data, if you have to introspect and think and become more aware of what's going on about your pain level or your whatever your symptoms are or your emotional state or in, in any way something that you have to pay attention to measure because we don't have a measurement for headache except by your self-report, the data gathering itself becomes a therapeutic tool. The act of tracking is part of the treatment in that they become much more aware of what is actually going on for them so that when we start trying to change things or treat or, or affect things in a, in a positive way, they actually have more basis on which to do that and we can identify more potential targets for interventions. So, so you think like basically building their awareness so that you can create that feedback is one of the most important parts of it? For us, it is. And I'm, I'm a behaviorist at heart. Um, I like to have people try things and over time and to see whether building new tracks and new behaviors in, in their brain can affect their body and their experience and their entire reality. So, so do you then find that uh, patients are able to come to you with insights more so than than before because all traditional diagnosis. I have some mystery problem. I'm coming to coming to the doctor, right? And the first thing to do is talk about my symptoms, try and like go for a questionnaire, try and figure out uh, what's going on. Do you find that sometimes that first picture, say compared to a second picture when you've had them self tracking something you felt was relevant, uh, could be quite different because it's, it is a subjective experience and they kind of learn to improve their self awareness and have a better hold of what's going on and maybe 
do sometimes they come up with some insights like it's it's funny every i notice that every time i do this then i get these symptoms right well people often come to the doctor and that is my that's my frame of reference because i'm a medical doctor and people come to me they come with symptoms but they also come with conclusions mm. and they might be already having diagnosed themselves or they might might just have made some assumptions or conclusions about why they're having the experience that they're having and i think the self-tracking paradigm encourages them to back up to the raw symptoms and also the circumstances that they find themselves in. You know, looking broadly at what are their circumstances and what are their symptoms in as concrete a fashion as possible and not making any assumptions. And then we make some hypotheses, but we frame them as hypotheses and not conclusions. And that gets them into an exploratory mode. Whereas if someone comes to me and says, I have a urinary tract infection, and I am at Kaiser Permanente, and I, am, I have eight minutes, I will prescribe ciprofloxacin to them for their urinary tract infection, and they will go away, especially if they say, oh, I've had them many times, and I know what they're like. That is not my style of medicine. I'm going to say, well, what are you actually feeling? And they're going to say, oh, I have burning when I urinate, or I you know, have fevers, or I have back pain, or whatever. And it is very likely in someone coming to the doctor that they are correct in that circumstance. But if you take something, but sometimes they're not. Sometimes they have a yeast infection and it's not a bladder infection and giving them antibiotics makes it worse. So I think you should always back up, but then especially if it's something vexing, they have probably been trying to figure out and fix it on their own for some time. Weeks, months, years, decades sometimes. So if it were something, if their conclusions were correct, I mean, not their diagnosis, but their, their assumptions and conclusions, I believe they would have figured it out and they never would have met me. So therefore, the fact that they are coming to me with the time and expense and hassle of going to a doctor, it's very intimidating for some people. It means they are probably ready for a pivot. <laughs> <laughs> it is a sign that it is probably time to take a different approach. So if I can get people to back up and look at the raw data, the raw symptoms, and then we can look at the, all the possibilities and start to make some hypotheses. And some of the hypotheses might be the, the conclusions they have drawn, but they have to be willing to have some flexibility about looking at other options. Otherwise, I might be a poor match for them. If they, if they just want someone to take their conclusions and follow their line of thought, then my view is, okay, they either don't need me at all or they only need me because I, in California, I can order laboratory tests for them. Or I can order medications for them and they, that they cannot legally order on their own. So in essence, I am just a proxy for them having gone to, through the licensure pathway that I have gone through. And I'm not really functioning as a physician as I define it. And so I try to resist getting involved in just being a, a tool that they can wield. And I try to get work with people who, who actually want to back up and really take a look at what is going on. So what kind of metrics have you typically found to be useful? You said they're qualitative. Are these ratings from one to 10 for symptoms or what kind of things have you found that are useful? A wide variety of things. So with each metric, we have a discussion about what is the, what are we going to track? Like say for a headache, are we going to track mild, moderate, severe? Are we going to track zero to four, actually the numbers and bins of data collection that you define dramatically affect the results of your tracking. You have to all agree on what each bin means. What does three stars mean? 
it can vary widely over many people, and that makes it useless. So you have to, and then they have to have written down what each metric means so that they can apply it as consistently as possible over time. Because if they drift in what a headache of three means, then their data is going to be very hard to use. So we try to apply the sort of N of one controls as best we can to define things clearly, to revisit them, to keep people calibrated. And then try to figure out, is it a negative two to two scale or is it a zero to four scale that's going to be helpful? And try to make it as simple as possible so that people can actually do it in real life. Sometimes you have to use subjective, like, narrative data. And that's why we've taken a coaching model rather than a computer analysis model. Because the most interesting things sometimes are the things that they write. They're, they're observations about the process or about the data. Um, it could be a picture of something. It could just be their description of how they were feeling at the time that they had the high blood pressure. That's actually much more interesting. So is that like a journal alongside whatever you're tracking? Yeah. And it, yeah. it could be an electronic journal or a paper journal. Um, my challenge with technology tools is they have to be paper. If they do not win over paper, then you have to question why you're using technology. It's interesting you brought that up because I struggled with my own problem just figuring it out. And I, the, the, what kind of first worked for me was using Evernote as a journal. Sure. Just kind of like a diary every day, one note for every day in a folder, which was called health diary. And then also tracking some metrics and, and like, oh, that's interesting. I wrote paper apps. It's almost paper, right? Right. Yeah. And it's easy to search. I mean, that's why it's nice, because if you have some kind of hypothesis in your head, you can look, select that folder and you can select, you know, search for that keyword. And you're like, oh, look, it happened on four days and maybe it coincides with the metric. Sure. And that's what I would call primitive technology like paper. And sometimes it is the best approach because something much more complicated will keep you from gathering the data because it's too cumbersome. It's been very hard to apply machine learning and machine interpretation of data because the raw numbers rarely have the meaningful insights. And our, our basic model, we've gotten more flexible about exactly how we implement it. Initially, we were doing a weekly coaching model where people would track the data would be shared with a coach who would meet with them in person or virtually every week to review their data and basically elicit their memories of what happened that week that they had not taken down as part of the data. So they would use the pictures or numbers or whatever they attract. And people remember a week, most people. Whereas if you go back a month, people do not remember the moment to moment experience they were having. Um, which is probably why psychotherapy is typically a weekly model, because people, you don't have to reinvent the wheel every time. You can build on the previous week because you remember. Um, and so the coaching model would allow people to tell the story around the data. And then the coach would concisely record the story and plug it into the project or the experiment that we were running and try to write down the story and the insights that could be taken and then the insights and the summary of the story could be fed back to me, the physician, where very quickly I could think about it and apply my you know, perhaps greater perspective or set of ideas and make suggestions. And so it became very time efficient for me rather than me going through the data for an hour every week. I could go through the coach's notes for a few minutes and be almost as effective. And in some cases, much more effective than I could be trying to be the coach myself. The raw data was almost never the actionable 
Now, that's not always true. If we're just doing a very simple tracking experiment where your blood pressure is 220 over 120, and we want it to get lower <laughs> very quickly, and we're going to track what you're doing and what medication you're taking and how often you're taking it and track your blood pressure, there you actually do have a much more concrete, discrete kind of experiment that you could apply some sort of automation to. Um, but that's not typically why people are coming to me. Most people are coming with much more complicated and murky problems um, that where subjective data is really the actionable data. Right. You see this, like if we're talking about the situations where you found this most useful, is it the more mysterious people haven't been able to figure out any uh, like complex multi multifactorial potentially but is there also something on the very, because you also mentioned something on the very hard side, nearly technical, where you have a blood pressure marker and it's a very focused metric that you're like, we have to get that down. You know, from doctor's experience and everything, this is the thing we need to focus on. So you know ahead of time what you want to focus on. Are those the kind of the two situations or are there other situations where? Um, I would say it's a whole spectrum, but the key factor is that if the tracking based on insights and memory and and subjective recall around objective data that you're gathering is by its nature very labor intensive. Like this process to really do a meaningful tracking experiment is labor intensive and, and costly in various ways. You have to hire help. You have to spend a lot of time. You have to think about it. You have to be involved in the process. And for that reason, that typically is applied to problems that are pretty either very urgent or long-term vexing. Right for people. Like they tend to be more complicated because they are at the end of their rope <laughs> and they need help and they are ready to do anything right. to figure this out. Mm -hmm. And that that's a wonderful situation to be in. <laughs> for a doctor, yeah, it's like compliance. Their right. intrinsic motivation is very high. Yeah, yeah. The outcomes tend to be good in anyone who comes to a doctor with high intrinsic motivation to do whatever it takes. And we do select in our practice for people with that description. So our outcomes are phenomenal. But part of that is selecting for people who are ready to do whatever it takes to figure this out. Um, so the other area, other than complex medical mysteries that we've applied this to, well, there are several areas. One are awareness building exercises, where we also have about half of our practice is a complex addiction treatment practice for high-functioning professionals. And um, so very intelligent people, many of them in the tech industry, who have what I would consider very mundane addiction problems. Is this quite caffeine or are we talking more? Alcohol, uh -huh. cocaine, mm -hmm. prescription, opiates. Okay. Is this quite common now? Because we all hear about the performance culture and everyone. It is uh, incredibly common now. It has always been incredibly common. And yet it continues to be incredibly common. And the more fast and stressful and complex society gets, as we're currently going through a little boom here in San Francisco, I would say, you know, it increases. Um, and the number of people who go out of control increases, where they, it gets beyond the place where they can self-manage and they, they seek professional help. So we are often trying to get people to do very basic tracking endeavors, whether it's their internal mood state or their discomfort level or interactions they're having with other people or whatever it triggers that they encounter that trigger them to want to self-soothe by taking their, or, or improve their performance by taking their substance or alcohol of interest. And it's a very simple tracking model aimed at getting them to be more aware. 
so that they can then have more decision over their reality. The other one is like the blood pressure example, where we're trying to achieve, um, or what's been going on for forever is the diabetes blood sugar tracking model. Physicians have been asking people to track their blood sugars for a long time now, and it's actually very useful. The last um, realm, I would say, is in the performance improvement category. People who are okay, but they want to be better, or they want to achieve a certain goal, whether that is in their body composition, or it's in performance at a triathlon, or it is in their work performance and their attention and their ability to accomplish things. And there, it's more of a positive desire to improve by tracking and feeding back. That's very motivating for me, and yet it's hard to find the people who want to do the self-tracking approach to that because it's pretty labor-intensive and these tend to be busy people. So if you're an Olympic athlete and you have a whole team of people you know, geared up at, at measuring you, feeding back, and changing your performance and changing what you do, um, and you have all that support around it, I think people can pull it off. If they're a competitive, high-level professional athlete, if for the, the regular person without that support team, um, we, have, we have had some challenges trying to construct a model that is both affordable, that does not require an NFL team support staff to accomplish, um, and also doable by people who are also leading lives and not full-time training. That's an ongoing exploratory area for us and trying to find what is a model that can, in a manageable way. In terms of any tools you use, like just kind of talking practicalities here, are you just asking people to use a little um, mobile phone app and put down a note in that? Or is it sometimes Excel? Or is it basically whatever they, you're like, what would you find easiest to track this metric that I want you to look at? We have been using a mobile phone app that we've been working with a developer on called MyMe, which I've been on record as having mentioned over the years, which is a very simple way to just set arbitrary buttons up for whatever they want to track and set whatever ranges of metrics you want to track, take pictures, etc., and then collate it on a central server where the, the account is owned by the individual, not by me, but then they choose to share their data with the coach or with me during sessions. Otherwise, they, they hold the data and, and own the data. And we just keep in our files our observations of the sessions with them while looking at the data. Um, and so that, that keeps it simple from a privacy standpoint and from a, a data, data curation standpoint. And it's worked fairly well. We also, if they don't like that tool or if they have different things they want to measure, um, we will take a best whatever works approach and try to get them to use other tools, most of which are not geared toward this. Most of them are geared toward different applications. Most of the existing tools. Amazingly, there isn't a good flexible generic tool that's consumer available where you can also involve a team. Um, and maybe there is. Yeah, where well, you can share the data, but it's also designed at helping analyze things and helping collate and curate data. Mm -hmm. um, and so Miami is working on that. It's not yet available to consumers. It's just sort of for coaches and doctors and, and people who are, who are working with people who are self-tracking. Oh, so there are other people like you working with Miami? Yeah. And, yeah, okay. All right. All this stuff we put in the show notes. Then there's various companies that have tracking devices, and each one has their own cloud where they track the data from their own devices. And some of them will integrate data from other devices and apps. Um, and it's coming together in some ways that I think might be good. 
but it's been so slow to develop that I'm sure I'm frustrated. Yeah, it's the same. I used to be a telecoms consultant and I worked in the uh, interactive television market in the UK, which was one of the first markets in the world. And they had this walled garden approach to it. Sure. And it took, and we were all talking about the open, like you have to open it up and it, it took nearly a decade to happen properly. And it's, it's always the same, except for the internet, luckily, um, which was pretty much open to start with. So that's great. What are the biggest challenges you've come across in, in trying to make self-tracking work? Have you had any failed, like I like to put it, have you had failed self-tracking projects where you've just been like, okay, after six months of tracking, let's just ditch this? And um, Basically, they fall into two camps. One is where the self-tracking paradigm is too much work or isn't intrinsically rewarding enough for the person to keep them going. Mm. You know, where the time and expense and hassle and all that is worth it. And they drop out because they just get frustrated or or don't um, continue. Um, the other is that their hypotheses are too narrow, that the hypotheses they are willing to consider are too narrow. And we, we explore those deeply and broadly and do not find the answer in that narrow set of hypotheses. And they tire of doing the project because it seems hopeless. Whereas there, while I, I actually believe that there's always mm-hmm. a way, but it may not be the way forward that people expect or desire. So it's basically a, like a process of elimination with one experiment, another experiment, and, and well, if the if the only hypothesis is that some food is causing my symptoms, mm. and we just need to find what food combination of foods or other environmental you know inputs, physical inputs are causing my symptoms, and once we really convincingly do all that experiment, either they are willing to do the experiments, one, and the answer is not food. <laughs> we believe, after a while, or they are unwilling to do some of the experiments because they are too attached to certain things. I love coffee. That, or marijuana, <laughs> yeah. or whatever. They're right. unwilling okay. to give up certain things. And that may be, but we look at everything else and, and everybody gets tired. Um, those are the, the places where, you know, where actually there's a different paradigm that we need to apply. We need to do a pivot, but they don't want to pivot. And, um, and then you run into a dead end. And the startup company fails or startup company ends, ceases to be, and everybody goes off to do other things. And that is, that is sometimes what happens. Great. And you referred to earlier that you've had a lot of success with this. Could you share some of the success kind of like stories you've had? Has this improved your practice? Like, would you say immensely a, a bit or? I would say it has improved it measurably, but not immensely. Um, in immensely was a big word. That we are still working on optimal paradigms to make the paradigm match the individual and to try to bring it into a combination of energy and time and price and that can match anybody. And we have not yet figured all that out. So that's why it's not immeasurably. If we can apply these kind of concepts to every patient and successfully, because we can custom make it for each individual, then it would be game changing. And that's what we're aiming for. So, but, and I say the successes are where either there is a simple answer or a, I would say a complex, simple answer. It's too complex for them to have figured out by introspection and their own tracking. But with some professional help, we can get to that slightly more complicated insight that allows a dietary change or experiment or supplements or changes in their medications or um, some other intervention to suddenly work. And then sometimes the tracking helps them to implement that intervention. If it's a food change, Sometimes that takes a lot of time to change 
habits, behaviors, and family food production dynamics, et cetera. Um, and sometimes the self-tracking is very supportive in that. Um, or we exhaust one avenue of exploration and it gets them to the place where they are ready to consider other paradigms, where maybe it's not food, maybe it's, I don't know, my relationship with my husband and son. Um, maybe, you know, as one, one patient found out that, you know, there were some very, very stressful, vexing and long-standing family dynamics going on at home that clearly, once we got to know them, were contributory to the situation and symptoms. What kind of symptoms, just to give people or um, a reading on this? The common classes of symptoms that people come to that are hard to diagnose are fatigue, pain of various kinds, neuropathic pain or other kind of musculoskeletal pain, uh, and gastrointestinal symptoms. And when those are accompanied by relatively negative, relatively normal tests and investigations from a conventional paradigm, many times they run into roadblocks with the conventional medical world where they say, well, you're normal. So you are lumped into a wastebasket diagnosis that doesn't really describe why, it just describes what is going on in a very not, you know, descriptive but not helpful way. Chronic fatigue syndrome doesn't, in its current form, really help people to move forward um, except graded exercise and similar things that are not typically very satisfying to people. Um, and when they work, it's great, but some people, that's not the whole answer. It could be very inflammatory conditions and rheumatologic conditions that do have objective markers that are abnormal but don't fit into any paradigm so that they're not tempted to throw heavy drugs at them. And yet they just run into uh, diagnoses appended by the word NOS, not otherwise specified, meaning it's not something that the conventional world takes a strong interest in because they don't have a discrete category to put it in. And so that is one common class of, of people where sometimes it is what they think it is because they have been reading blogs on the internet that say that food is the cause. If you change your food, you can cure anything. That is a common paradigm that you read about on the internet, especially people promoting a certain food paradigm, um, that basically all, you know, all mystery illnesses are, should be treatable with food or are from some, from, from some food trigger, and that if you eliminate it or figure it out, that hence the autoimmune protocol diet, which is an extreme elimination diet, or, and very specific and very hard to implement, and may help some people, but for most is just, it's not the, the end-all answer. And so many people come very frustrated and wanting to find, but they're still on the food path. And once we kind of figure out that maybe there are other factors involved, either medical or psychological or social or spiritual, um, we can come up with a more integrative approach that is much more fruitful for them, either to fix their symptoms or to make it so that the symptoms are not as uh, disabling or that they can do everything they want to do in life because they're able to mitigate the symptoms and improve their ability to function with those symptoms. Because it's of my opinion that getting the symptoms to go away while it is always the, the initial, and it's always the goal. Sometimes in this world, um, there are mysteries. And being comfortable that sometimes there is a mystery and you have to work with it is the paradigm shift that has to happen. Now, you don't want to start with that because ultimately people come to a doctor to get cured. And that's really the paradigm, the cultural paradigm that we operate in. And I like to 
acknowledge that and I like to participate in it, but I also like to continue to try to expand the paradigm to include other things. So you're saying you can improve the situation as well. Yeah. And and sometimes actually taking a more open-minded approach about what could be contributing and working on function rather than cure, improving function rather than the the, the functional medicine paradigm slash vision that underlying all illness, there is some root cause that you can discover. And once you discover the root cause, everything will get better. And that is wonderful when it happens. And yet, um, sometimes you have to take a more solution-focused and practical approach to what do I want to accomplish in life? How can I get there? Sometimes that actually causes the symptoms to diminish, even though you never really find out what caused them. So um, I think it's, it's helpful to keep an open mind about that. And yet most people in our society come in with a materialist obsession that it must be some biochemical or discoverable, testable thing that is causing my symptoms. And we have to work with that for a while. And either it's true and we cure them and we're heroes. I get to be Dr. House every so often where I discover that mystery root cause and it's beautiful. But other times we have to take a more practical approach. And I think uh, in the psychotherapy world, there's the Freudian analytic perspective where you find that one insight from your childhood and then your current problems will get better. Um, Or there's the cognitive behavioral approach where, well, let's just deal with what's going on now and how you're going to deal with it. And maybe what happened in the past will sort of take care of itself. And so um, I think that can be applied to human medicine more physical medicine as well. Um, but I always meet people at whatever level of the materialist spectrum they're on, and I go there first. Because ultimately, they need to do the experiment for themselves. They cannot take my word for it. Right. It sounds like a very team-focused approach to the whole doctoring thing, which isn't, you know, I guess isn't really traditional. It sounds more from, from the modern world. I mean, we're seeing team building and team practices and a lot of what we do in the world now thanks to corporate, corporates and so on. Would you say that it's changed the way you approach the practice and the way you work with patients? I think I've always taken this approach to working with patients. It's not new to me. And yet, I think you're right. In the conventional paradigm, it is, um, it is hard to find. There's a lot more words and verbiage around this team approach in the healthcare world now because of the polit- politics going on. But in practice it's still really hard to find a collaborator, someone who's more focused on the process, doing the process right, than on the outcome. And where we're going to really focus on getting improving the process and changing the process dynamically as we go through working with each individual. That comes from my engineering background in systems engineering and uh, control system theory and, and just designing things, is that you have to constantly change your approach based on what's going on. And that takes feedback and communication. And it takes two people who are aligned working together. Now, there is a power differential. I have an MD, I wear a stethoscope. It's, there is some value to that role differential. Someone who is looking for help from a professional who, in theory, has maybe some things to offer based on my experience and training and insights. Um, and at the same time, I like to also align with whomever I'm working and work together so that we are focused on if the process isn't working, we can talk about that and fix the process. If we get to the answer and the, and the conclusion, we can celebrate together 
And if that is vexing and takes longer or is more difficult to find, well, then we can pivot together. Or they can separate from this and we can, they can move on to other paradigms or other people to work with, and that's fine too. And so it's, not, um, it's less pressure in a certain sense on, I'm going to throw this problem at the doctor and the doctor is going to spit an answer back at me, because that's an all or nothing kind of proposition. Either it works and you're happy, or much more likely it's not exactly right, and somehow there's been a failure. Would you say you need you need the patient to take some responsibility? The example you just gave is basically where they're saying, "All right, I don't have responsibility. Just like give me give me the fix." And well, I, the more responsibility the patient takes, the better. The extreme example is the patient who does not consult a doctor and just does it on the, on their own. And those people exist. There are many of them. They achieve great results, and I never meet them, except at quantified self. <laughs> If you are doing it on your own successfully, it, then you never meet me as a patient. However, in many cases, people get frustrated or they need new ideas, they need new paradigms, they want to explore with someone who can meet them at their level, have a very, very quick and um, useful conversation, and then help them to implement. And I have the tools of pharmacology and laboratory testing and other testing and access to specialists. You know, I have all the medical tools at my disposal if they are appropriate. And the experience. It's all good doing an N equals one experiment. But, you know, if someone's been overseeing hundreds of experiments, yep. they learn things from those experiments in themselves, which could be relevant to your case. So I think so, except I'm, I'm continuously amazed at how individual people are. Mm. Now, even in problems that are relatively, I would say, conserved among individuals, like alcohol in the human brain, it's really not that... There are only a few different ways that that tends to manifest on an obvious level, how people relate to alcohol. And yet their individual circumstances and details are unique, which makes every approach unique. And so I say I have gotten some insights from the self-tracking that apply to others. I think it is hard to take measurable insights and extract it in a, in a study, in a medical study kind of way. And that's why I continue to not be afraid of computers taking over my job. <laughs> because ultimately, I think there is a combination of metrics and data and also presence and attention and experience that work together. And that's why I think the medical profession has hope, is that if you can provide presence and attention and experience and knowledge and then integrate data into that, you can actually be helpful to someone more frequently. And so that's why I do what I do. Paul, I also just wanted to find out a little bit about you and what you do with yourself when it comes to the quantified self or any kind of tracking of metrics or biomarkers. Is there anything that you track for yourself on a routine basis or you've explored potentially? Um, right now I'm tracking sleep, mostly just sleep duration. I think I've gotten the insights about sleep quality from various previous tracking endeavors. And um, more as a behavioral thing to try to get myself to lie down more, which is particularly vexing for me. And I'm tracking weight and body composition as I do different dietary experiments, partly for my own health and partly just to experiment with different dietary approaches. And I've done many experiments when I have had problems that I wanted to fix or wanted to understand better. And some of them haven't been fixable, but I understood them better and that helped me to deal with them. Um, headaches and, and other things that I've talked about in the past. 
Um, so I would say I use my baseline is I'm not doing lots and lots of time intensive self-tracking because I don't have time. The time involved in the investment of time and resources is more than my available disposable resources. And it's not, and the problems aren't serious enough to warrant giving up other things. Um, but when something important comes up, I, I start to implement more tracking. Right, right. So in terms of the sleep quality you mentioned, did, what do you use to track that? Because I know tr- sleep is a bit of a tricky area to track. And are you using just, are you using my me today, like to track your hours or what are you doing for that? It all started with the Zio, rest in peace, <laughs> right. yeah. and um, which allowed you to get some, albeit not 100% accurate, um, EEG data out of your sleep and sleep stage. And it was very nice. And I didn't mind wearing a headband every night, which some people found objectionable. Now there are better tools, um, some of which I've experimented with from Y-Things and ResMed and Bedit and, you know, where they're rel- less invasive tools to track your sleep that don't require a headband. I think right now I'm using just an app on a phone that lays on the bed and um, has an alarm built into it and tracks start and end time of sleep. It also records sounds. So if you snore, it will give you all the snippets of snoring through the night. Um, it's just a simple app on the iPhone. So I think I use the simplest tool for whatever I actually am interested in. So right now I just set my alarm and then it, when it wakes me up, I know how much time I was, I was asleep. And I have some subjective notes I take about that. Like, how was my sleep? And I found that those notes correlate pretty well with reality when I've used actual sleep, medical sleep tracking devices that are used for sleep studies on myself in the past. I found that, you know, Zio correlated well enough that I could, I could actually use that data. And now I don't actually need the Zio even to know what's going on with my sleep because I know what it feels like. Yeah. I actually do the same as you now. I just track the number of um, hours I sleep with a little timer on my iPhone. I just click it when I go to sleep and I click it when I get back up. Out of interest, how many hours do you sleep? <laughs> what do you consider good or bad? My personal ideal is eight hours, almost exactly. 7.9 to 8.1, somewhere in there. And when I, when I get that much, um, you feel better, everything improves, <laughs> That's good. Both, both subjective and objective. And, and, and have you got any little like uh, tools that have got you there? Cause I'm always at seven. I'm, I'm always trying to get to eight, but it's, right. it's hard. Right. Well, my, my particular app tracks over the last 14 days, what my cumulative sleep deficit is compared to uh, eight hours a night. Oh, that sounds scary. It is. And so yeah. when I get up, you know, above 10 to 15 hours of, sleep debt in two weeks other people don't behave as well now that's i mean that's my observation (laughs) (laughs) i'm not i'm not performing as well and and it manifests in the extra as the external world um not cooperating that's interesting yeah that's that's good and it goes back to you're saying like not everything is about food and you know sometimes it's the other psychological emotional things which are probably harder to identify what would be your number one recommendation to someone who's trying to use data to make better decisions to improve their health performance or longevity, any aspects of themselves? I would um, define a relatively simple goal that actually really matters to you. Either it's something terrible that you want to fix, or it's something really juicy and rewarding that you want to achieve, and then set up a, as simple a self-tracking experiment as you can. You just cannot, most people cannot pull off complex self-tracking unless they have diagnosable obsessive compulsive disorder or some, some spectrum of that. Um, so you have to just start with simple things that are as easy to track as possible and some goal that's really motivating. 
so that you have the best chance of actually doing it and seeing if this modality, if this type of thing works for you. Some people find it intolerable. Some people find it absolutely fascinating and motivating. And you can always add complexity later. And then if you try and it's a great modality for you, but you can't pull it off, you need more accountability or more insight or more help designing experiments, that's when you involve a coach all the way up through a medical doctor um, who's interested in this kind of thing. Great, great. Thank you for that. It's a great recommendation. Totally agree with it. Um, so what would be the best ways for people to connect with you? Is it like Facebook or your website or where do people usually, are you active anywhere or, or how should people try to connect with you? I'm variably active on Twitter at Paul Abramson, MD. We do have a Facebook page and a Google Plus page, and I'm easily findable on the internet. I usually do respond to social media. Um, if people want to become patients at my doctor medical group, my practice in downtown San Francisco, uh, they can just call us up and we can describe how it works and how people can come in. Um, I usually don't work as patients with people that I have not met and examined uh, for personal and professional reasons. Isn't that, yeah, isn't that a legal requirement in California? Or? It's subjective. And yet I find that my intuition and my ability to be helpful to people improves dramatically if I have sat in the, if I have had some time in a room with them and if I have laid my hands on them and examined them. Um, things work out much better. I've tried both ways. And, um, and so I've just decided that I'm going to meet with people who can meet with me here in San Francisco. And that does restrict my ability to work with some people. Otherwise, I can have theoretical conversations with people. My time is pretty darn limited uh, in terms of how much banter I can do on social media. But I, I, I do my best to, uh, to be available. Excellent. Excellent. All right. So we'll, we'll put all of those in the show notes and your website, of course. Is there any, anywhere else you would suggest people look to learn about what well, we'll call it quantified medicine, uh, for want of a better term? Is there any resources you've come across that you found helpful and might be helpful to people? Well, the quantified self movement, it's really more of a movement than a, an enterprise, but it holds meetups all over the world um, in many cities. And it also has an annual conference or semi-annual, I think, in, in the Bay Area. And then frequently there is one in Europe. So um, that's a wonderful community to connect to where there's an intersection of people of all different persuasions. And so you can always find someone who wants to do something similar to you in that community because it's a very heterogeneous community. As far as other, there's so many, there are so many different things going on in medicine around self-tracking. I think the reason Quantified Self appealed to me is that it does not have a strong vested financial motivation or conflicts of interest. And so you can go there and everybody's pretty much there just to be there. There are some people trying to sell things, but they stick out pretty obviously. And it's very egalitarian and anybody can speak. And it's so I like that. Whereas everything else you have to filter through the business model perspective. And if you can do that, there's, I mean, especially here in the Bay Area and in Western Europe, there's just a lot of enterprise going on around this. And so it's more about finding things that speak to you. I don't have any particular points of focus. Great. Thanks. Well, Paul, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. It's been a great discussion. You're very welcome. It's been great to be with To get more of The Quantified Body, subscribe on iTunes or go to the website, verquantifiedbody.net. That's T-H-E-Q-U-A-N-T-I-F-I-E-D-B-O-D-Y dot N-E-T. You can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook. On Twitter, we are at twitter.com slash quantifiedbody. 
and on Facebook, we are at facebook.com forward slash quantified body podcast. If you've got feedback or requests for the show, you can email them to me at damien at thequantifiedbody.net. That's D-A-M-I-E-N at thequantifiedbody.net. Thanks for joining the show this week. See you next time.